Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 5. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. This is the word of God. We've been looking for the past several months at the core values of Metro. What moves Metro? What motivates us? And we've been spending the last 11 weeks talking about what we call the centrality of the gospel. That's the engine that powers everything, all of our other values. And one of those values is community. When the, when the gospel becomes your motivational center, you become dependent on community. You start to need community. Now, we like to use that word a lot here at Metro. But why is it important? Because I think once we start to see what it's really about, we're all going to have to shift a little bit. We're all going to have to redefine how we view community and turn to Christ and what he intends for this community. Now, Isaiah 56 tells us three things. One, the importance of community. Two, the character of community. Third, the power to get that kind of community. The importance of community the character of community, and lastly, where do you get the power to become that kind of community? First, we're going to look at the importance of community. Verse 1, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand. My salvation is close at hand. That sounds a lot like, you better be good because I'm coming, and when I get there, there's going to be a reckoning. It seems contradictory to the rest of the Bible. It seems contradictory to the gospel. It seems contradictory to grace. What does that mean? Now, when you look at the phrase, my salvation is close at hand, what he's really saying is the end point is near. In other words, salvation has, had, has a history. Salvation has a history, and it begins in the beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible. It has a history that spans the entire Bible, and what's being said here by Isaiah is that it's now coming to an end. Since Genesis, since the first book of the Bible, three things existed before sin ever even came into the world. The first was work, then you have family, then you have rest. And that means work, family, and rest, they existed before sin ever came into the world. Relationships existed before sin. And as a result, that meant that we're to center our lives around serving God, but also around serving one another. But when we chose to serve ourselves, as opposed to serving God, our relationship with God completely blew up. And as a result, trust became broken. And when that trust broke, relationships started to break. Families started to break up. Cities became broken. Societies became broken. There's oppression. There's war. There's violence. There's injustice. Why? Because naturally, we all believe that we are at the center. It is very natural to believe that we ourselves are at the center of our lives when there's only really one true center. Our selfishness, our self-absorption, our sin ruined humanity. 
But the story of salvation goes like this. God chose to save us. God chose to love us. And so from the book of Genesis, way in the beginning, there was a promise with Adam. And that led into, there's Abraham. And through Abraham, God makes a promise to expand family into a community of people, a new community, he says. I'm going to build a new society through you, Abraham, a new people. And in the book of Exodus, you have the story of Moses. Through Moses, God turns this people, after he rescues them out of Egypt, out of slavery, he turns this people to an organized community. That's why he have laws. Those laws, laws turn a people into a nation. This nation This society was to model peace. It was supposed to model the restoration, the love, the justice, the freedom that you have in a way that reflects the character of God. Then eventually you get to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. What do you have in 1 Samuel? 2 Samuel, you have the story of David. And through David, this nation with laws that reflect the character of God, this new society, this new community that God intended becomes a kingdom. That's one of the endpoints. The king is the representative of the justice and the wisdom and the humility and the character of God. But by the time you get to the prophets, they said, you know what? There's a, there's a greater Moses that's going to come. There's a greater David that's going to come. There's going to be a greater peace, in essence. There's going to be a greater justice. There's going to be an ultimate justice, and it's coming. In other words, it's close at hand. And so centuries later, Jesus Christ, the king himself, comes down. And he goes all the way to the cross, and then he dies. But throughout Jesus' teaching, what does he say? He talks about life, what life will be like in this new society, this new humanity, what life will be like in this new community, this kingdom. And he says over and over, you are that new society. You are that kingdom. It's not just about you as an individual. It's not just about your family. You are a new race. You are a new humanity consisting people from all lands. And one day, you will complete the restoration of this society. That's what's coming. That's going to be the end point. That's the salvation that's close, that's near. The Bible teaches us over and over to anticipate that new community, to anticipate what's coming, that humanity. So in light of that, we have verse 1 here in chapter 56 of Isaiah. What does verse 1 mean? Maintain justice and do what is right. Verse 3, let no foreigner who bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. What Isaiah is doing is this. He's looking ahead. He's looking ahead at God's promise. Way back in the book of Genesis, as the history of salvation starts to unravel, he's looking at the ultimate community that God is building, and he's saying, it's right here. It's at my fingertips. It's at hand. And so he's calling us to live into it. Live into God's justice. Live into God's righteousness. Live into this community of grace that we're called to be. In other words, the purpose of salvation is what? It's not just so that we would all be uh, taken to heaven. The purpose of God's promise of salvation is what? Revelation chapter 21. That's the end of the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What did he see coming down? I saw what's coming down, a holy suburb? No, that's not what he said. He says, I saw a holy city coming down. What is a city? City represents the center of merchants, commerce, academia, technology. When you look at Marvel movies and you see Wakanda, 
in many ways, Marvel has a better picture of a society that has, that has risen into and lived into a restored community. It's not like we're all going to be sitting around a church and just worshiping God, you know, singing the same song on repeat 10,000 times over. God intends to bring us to become a restored community as a city. What's going to come down as a city? The city represents that center of community. The center, there's people everywhere. There's life everywhere. In other words, you are saved with a purpose to complete and restore the new community of God, the city of God. You are saved into it. When you're saved into uh, Christ, you are saved into this new community. Now, there are lots of implications. It means, one, you can't just come to church. Even if you come every week, you can't just come to church and just come for just some information that's going to improve your life. Learn some tidbits about the Bible you didn't know before. You don't just come to church, even if you come every week, for a little bit of community on your terms, a little bit of church on your terms. That goes against the entire purpose of God saving you because the purpose of God saving you is to transform you as a people to become restored as a community. Now, look, even, if I say, even as I say this, some of you out there have your own idea of what the church is supposed to be, what your own idea of what church should be. And so if Metro goes against that idea, even slightly, something must be wrong with this church. And you don't consider the possibility that it's your lack of humility, your lack of, your lack of wisdom, your pride that's actually doing harm to the church and actually bringing dishonor to God. And here's the thing. The people who are most in danger of that are the ones who grew up in the church. That's most of us. We need the church to challenge us. You need the church, the community of the church, to shape you. At the same time, you know, you can't, another way to say that, you can't change your own on your own. You can't change yourself on your own. Think about this. We are all shaped by the most intimate communities that are around us whether it's your family or your closest friends. It doesn't matter how uh, often you go to church. If, you are shaped, if we are shaped by the most intimate communities around us, then what scripture is calling us is to become very intimate with the community of the gospel that is the church. Not because it's perfect. It's not based on its works. It's not based on its merits. It's by grace and by sheer grace because that's how you were saved in the first place. You will never grow into the likeness of Jesus by the saving power of God's grace, by his work in you until you are willing to submit yourself to an intimate community of the church. When's the last time that you ever said, I'm going to commit to a group of leaders. I'm going to commit or submit myself to a group of leaders who are wise in God's word and give them a warrant for my arrest so that I can grow. You can't expect to just sit in a church every week and expect to mature as a Christian on your own terms. Church always has to be, that means, a little bit uncomfortable. It's got to be a little bit disturbing even in some ways because it's constantly intruding into your life. It's constantly challenging you. That's the importance of community. Now, number two, what's the character of a gospel community? In other words, worldly communities 
are built around social connections. They're built around emotional support. They're built around shared interests. So if a gospel community is supposed to be different than a social community, a worldly community, it has to be more about your social needs or your emotional needs or your shared interests. And it is. How? One, this text calls us to maintain justice and righteousness. Verse 1 and 2, maintain justice and do what is right. Blessed is the man who does this. Blessed is the one who does justice and righteousness who keeps the Sabbath. Now, it sounds like a non sequitur. You got the Sabbath on one hand. You got justice and righteousness on the other. How do those two things come together? If you, if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you would know that the author is, is actually taking those two concepts and bringing them together so the concept of justice rolls into this concept of rest in the Sabbath. How is that possible? Because when I think justice, I think about work. I think about effort that I got, I got to put in. And what Isaiah is saying here is, in a way, all of us are slaves to something. We're all oppressed by our work. We live today, not in those days, but we live today in a capitalistic culture. A capitalistic culture takes work, which is a good thing. Work existed before sin. It takes work, something that we were designed to do, something that we will do at the end of history. But then what this culture does is because we are apart from God, because we don't have a personal relationship with God, we've lost ultimate meaning and purpose for our lives and our souls. And so this need to be successful, this need to achieve, this need to make money, this need to be productive, this need to build, this need to do better than others. I need more. I, I need to do better. I deserve more. I deserve to do better. So while everyone is working to find meaning in the world, the very nature of Sabbath says what? I want you to limit your work. I want you to rest. I want you to limit your earning potential. I want you to limit your wealth. I want you to limit your productivity. And, and it's saying that Jesus set me free from that need to achieve, that need to succeed, from the weight of anxiety then, so that I'm tr- because I'm trying to succeed, I'm constantly in anxiety, that, that fear of failure, and thus the overworking that comes with that, Because my worth is found not in what I do, but on what Jesus did. Not in how people perceive me, but who Jesus is. And when the gospel takes a hold of you like that, we stop exploiting other people. We stop using people because we feel like we we need to get to know them in order to get something out of them. We stop exploiting our workers, people who report to us. We stop exploiting customers. We stop exploiting the environment. And when you observe the Sabbath in the heart, On one hand, it's really good for the soul. I mean, we all recognize that it's good to rest for the soul. It's good for your body. It's good for your family. But it's good for the relationships around you because what we're saying is the environment, your neighbors, your customers, your partners, the people you serve, and the people who report to you, they are more important than your wealth. That's what you're saying. You are maintaining justice. It leads to radical giving. It leads to radical justice because you're making a radical sacrifice. It's counterintuitive to the world. The second thing it does, verses 3 to 5, is it leads you to reject worldly idols. Verses 3 to 5 says, Let not a eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. To them I will give the name that is greater than sons and daughters. Now you have to think about this. Ancient kingdoms, they wanted certain officials to get castrated. 
Not the kind of thing you want to think about in the morning, all right? They wanted certain officials to get castrated and become a eunuch because they didn't want men. How do you vet a person that's not a part of your family, that's not a part of your palace? They didn't want men who are outside of their class or outside of their lineage to become near, to come near their families, to go near the palace. In other words, castration, you got castrated. It was a way of moving up. Castration was a way of advancing. But Israel as a country, as a nation, they didn't have eunuchs because God says your wealth or your status or your role will never be more important than what God gave you. And what he endowed you with is a body and a chance to have a family. And so eunuchs, they were all foreigners. Any eunuch that lived in Israel or that came to Israel was a foreigner. They were out. They were outside. They were marginalized. But here, Isaiah says, even a eunuch who surrenders himself to the Lord is in. I mean, you became a, you became a eunuch to make a name for yourself. But God says, you will have an even better name. For those who surrender to the Lord, in ancient times, your family was your idol. Your family was an idol. They'd say, I'm nothing without a spouse. A lot of traditional cultures today make you feel that way. I'm nothing without a spouse. I'm nothing if I don't have children. It's not too different from a lot of people we hear today. But here, God says, if you have a personal relationship with me, I will give you something that's more important, greater than a family. And I will give you a name that's greater than sons, that's greater than having daughters. In other words, you will not be identified by how many sons and daughters you have. You will not be identified by the reputation you carry. You will be identified as my son, something greater than having sons and daughters. I will give you a name and I will give you a family, something greater than a name, something greater than a family. That's why Jesus was single. Why the apostle Paul was single. It was unheard of in the ancient culture. But the church validated people who were single. They didn't say your worth is determined by how many children you had, how much land you owned, or if you had a spouse. The church validated it because they demonstrated that your worth was based on God's son, not how many sons you had. You were in by grace. A new community would be different. They would have different values, values that are apart from the things that our society places tremendous worth and value in. The third thing is that it removes barriers. If you look at verse 3, Isaiah says, Let no foreigner who bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Isaiah is saying, You need to look ahead again to that, and you need to anticipate a new community. You need to look ahead to a family that doesn't have any barriers. And so in Matthew chapter 28, which is printed in your call to worship, Jesus tells his people, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. But they don't. They actually don't go to the ends of the earth. So what does, do, what does God do? It isn't until Acts chapter 8, God allows persecution to enter into the church. Then people start to spread out. People start to go. And who comes to know Jesus in Acts chapter 8? An Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner, is in. The new community embraces foreigners. The new community embraces people who are very different from you, different from your politics, different from your profession, different types of status, 
different educational status, different type of wealth class, different pedigrees. A new community embraces people who are largely different than you, which means that at Metro, you can, you can embrace people who are very, very different from you. Metro tomorrow can look very different even from Metro today. We need to embrace that. We need to embrace that and you need to practice that now. You need to be in the, you can't say, well, when it happens, I'll be there because then you're going to be the one who's going to dig his heels in to try to prevent that from happening. You see? Not every church that Metro plants tomorrow could be Asian. Maybe, maybe not. But to grasp the mission of the gospel, you need to be shaped by people who are very different from you. It's not just about being friends or being kind when you're in front of them. It's about being shaped by them. In order to be shaped by them, you need to be intimate with them. In order to be intimate with them, you can't just be intimate with one. There has to be plural. There has to be a a plurality of friends and partners that you can learn from, that you can get intimate with. Anyone who is open to the gospel That's what binds you together. It brings down every barrier. The gospel transcends gender boundaries, racial boundaries, ethnic boundaries, language boundaries, profession boundaries, status boundaries, pedigree boundaries, educational boundaries, geographic boundaries, even religious boundaries. Because if you come to embrace Jesus Christ as the way and truth in life, to be reconciled with God as your identity, if that's how you identify yourself, then it doesn't matter if you're red or blue. Today, it's all about being red or blue. You can, a red can embrace blue. In fact, in Isaiah, in the very book of Isaiah, it says, one day the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Wolf will lie down with the lamb. Not implying that red or blue is wolf, okay? By the way, when you practice justice, when you reject worldly idols, when you remove barriers and open yourself to a people who are very different from you. On one level, you can be friends with a very wide range of people. You can get very close with a very wide range of people because you're not using them to get someplace. It's genuine community. But on the other hand, when you start to pursue justice and righteousness and you start to embrace people who are very different from you, You start to care about things that you didn't care about before. Things that they care about. The weak and the oppressed, the voiceless, the poor, starts to burden you. So you truly start to pursue justice and righteousness. You start to shed idolatry because you become giving and generous. And you start to include as opposed to exclude. It's no longer about we versus them. It becomes a much larger we. You see that? How are you going to be that radically giving and sacrificing and accepting and embracing in a way that Isaiah describes here in these five verses? Where do you get the power to become that? Again, we said naturally we are much more about ourselves. And Isaiah says in verse 5, To them I will give them a memorial and a name. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Very, very important. What does that mean? I'm going to say two things. And then we're going to close. One, what, it means, what does it mean to have a memorial and a name? The background comes from 2 Samuel, and it's about Absalom. It points to Absalom. Absalom was one of David's sons. So he was a prince. 
but he had no children of his own. And so in 2 Samuel, what he does is he, he sets up a memorial to himself because he had no son to carry on the memory of his name. So he sets up this memorial so that people will remember him. And what he's saying is, I have no children. And because I have no children, I'm insignificant in my day. My name has no meaning. Now think about this. For us, maybe it's about family too. Maybe it's about having children too one day. Or maybe it's about just having a large house. Or maybe it's about being in the right neighborhood or being among the right network. Or maybe it's about having wealth or a nice resume, something that you can be proud of. Maybe it's about making your parents proud. Maybe it's about finding that right guy or that right girl. Maybe it's about having uh, a nice figure or a nice career. These are the memorials that we tend to set up to have a name so that we can say, yes, I am validated. Yes, I, I mean something. I'm significant. That's one thing. Here, God says, I will give you a memorial. I will give you a name. In other words, you are remembered. You have a place in the Lord. Second thing he says is, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. What does it mean? Every high school student's nightmare, every middle school student's nightmare. Some of you have children about to enter into middle school. Maybe they are in middle school. The most traumatic part of being a middle school student is what? Being cut off. Being cut off from the life of that community. It's a curse. It stays with you for all time. In fact, it, it shapes people. Middle school has got to be one of the toughest times uh, in a child's life. High school has got to be one of the toughest times in a child's life because we're too immature to, to really express inclusivity, even in an age of inclusivity. But think about it. It goes even deeper than that. When you betray somebody very deeply, I mean, think about it. When you betray a coworker, you might lose your job. It hurts for a little bit. You'll move on. When you betray a friend, you might lose an entire circle of people. It will hurt you. Well, you'll probably survive and move on. But as you get more and more intimate in your circle, if you betray your spouse, you may not recover. It will be very difficult in some ways sometimes to recover. Depending on the seriousness of that betrayal, you may get cut off from your family, from your friends, from everybody that you care about. The more intimate the relationship is, the more pain there is when you're cut off. You become isolated from them. And if that's how it is between finite people, imagine how much more it is with an infinite God that we have betrayed. Which is why the curse of sin is to be cut off from God altogether and his people. Because sin by nature, sin by nature is selfishness, sin by nature is self-centeredness, sin by nature is self-absorption, and by nature, selfishness, as we, as we just described here, it's isolating. And so when you've been isolated too long, what happens? You start, it starts with loneliness, later on it becomes torturous, and then it makes you start to lose your sense of reality. When you are isolated from people, when you are isolated from a life-giving people, you start to lose your grasp of what is true and what is real. You start to go crazy. In other words, sin is insane, and it makes you go insane. So to be cut off from God is to say what? You are now out with the crazies. You are cut off from reality. You are cut off from anything that is real or sane. Because to be cut off from an intimate, because you're cut off from an intimate community that's filled with trust and love. But look, Jesus Christ came to bear that curse. That's the meaning of the cross. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? 
I've been cut off from my most intimate relationship, what gave me life, what gave me peace, my source of righteousness, my source of wisdom, my source of hope. Verse 1, my source of justice, my source of righteousness, my source of salvation. Verse 2, my source of rest, my Sabbath, my blessing. It's all gone. And instead of the blessing, now I'm being cursed because I've been cut off. When Jesus Christ bore the cross, he bore the curse. And Isaiah chapter 53 says what? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was cut off from the land of the living. He bore the curse for the transgression of God's people. He was stricken. In other words, he was torn apart. He was pierced. He suffered. He bled. He died. But more importantly, he was forsaken. He was kicked out. He was isolated. You know what that means? Jesus Christ, the son of God, he gave up the father. He gave up the source of life. He suffered the greatest loss of the deepest, most intimate relationship that anybody can have. The source of true relationship, true love and peace. And he lost his name. Because he was cut off from the father, he lost his name. He was isolated. He was alone. And he was on the cross. He was cut off from his friends because they betrayed him. He was cut off from the rulers because they turned their backs on him. He was cut off from the religious people. But the most important person to be cut off from was God himself, the father. And so because the son has been cut off from the father, he has lost his name. And the memorial that he raised was what? It was the cross, the curse itself. He suffered isolation, the ultimate isolation. Why? So that we would have the name. So we would have the father. So that we would have the love of God. Jesus Christ was cut off from all community. Why? So that we would be brought in to the most real and genuine community that God can give you that will be perfected one day, restored completely. No hypocrites there. No pew Christians there. No creasters there. You know, people who just show up for Christmas and Easter. None of those there. The gospel is our memorial. Jesus Christ suffered and pursued the ultimate injustice on himself. And he became sin. And he labored and sweat and was enslaved on the cross so that we could become the righteousness of God. We're in. Righteousness really just means you're approved. We're in. We're in not because God is just kind or because he's just merciful, but because he is just. It was so that God would maintain his justice and still maintain. That, if you trust in that, it becomes your rest. The gospel becomes your memorial. Jesus Christ becomes your rest. You can rest in him. Why slave and slave and overwork yourself to build a name when you have the greatest name, the ultimate name, one that will last. It's an everlasting name. He becomes your rest. He becomes your name. If you build your name on anything other than Jesus, your accomplishments, your success, your wealth, your family, it might make you feel good at certain times, but you will be at war with others. You will use other people and you will get used. You will betray people and you will get betrayed. That isolation has already begun in your life. But if you build your name, if you build your identity, not on what you do, but on what Jesus did, not on who you are, but who Jesus is. He is righteous. He is just. He is, he is the king. There's a name. That's everlasting. 
And that means you are worthy. That means you are validated. That means you are significant. It means you are loved. It means you are in because Jesus Christ was cut off and became the spiritual eunuch so that you would be made whole. Intimacy with God makes genuine intimacy with others possible. You can accept other people, in other words, because you yourself have been brought in and accepted by Jesus. And when you live into that truth, that's the end of racism. That's the end of socioeconomic depression and tension. That's even the end of religious wars and tension. It's the basis for a new community, a real community, an authentic community that doesn't sit there and boast about what they've accomplished, but on what Christ accomplished, which means you have to boast in your weakness. It makes you humble. A real community is what we all desire, is what we all need. And when you encounter Christ, the real Jesus of the scriptures, you will learn to practice empathy. You will seek justice. You will live righteously. You will accept others who are very, very different from you because you've been saved and brought in by Jesus right into this new community that God will restore and perfect at the end. His salvation is close at hand. This is the family. This is the family of God. This is the body of Christ. Make it organically yours. Let's pray together.